Hello, and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Coordinator, and today I'm here with Syed M. Masood, author of More Than Just a Pretty Face, his debut novel. And what a debut it is. It's funny, it's sweet, it's warm-hearted, and just such a good read. But I can't say it any better than some of our kid reviewers from our faculty lounge program. My favorite is from Ellie, who's 17 years old. Usually we get one or two sentences from our kid readers, but Ellie loved this book so much she almost wrote an entire essay. She says, I love Danielle because he's so tolerant and genuinely kind. Although he has a huge character arc in realizing his abilities and intelligence, he was kind from the get-go. Also, he's so tolerant. He doesn't bash either of his friends for the way they practice the same religion, but instead facilitates understanding. He never tells anyone they're wrong, just that they should listen to others. The conversations he had with his friends were so mature, and I really appreciated him for that. The characters are all so full and amazing, and overall, it just made my heart happy to read. That's one of my favorite kid reviews that we've ever gotten. It was just really nice to open up the email and see that somebody, that a a young reader had written so much about the book. Syed, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So before we jump into the questions, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So obviously, my name is Syed Masood. I'm the author of More Than Just a Preface. Uh, I'm an attorney. I practice in Sacramento. And I have two kids, five and two. And they take up all my time when I'm not writing. So More Than Just a Pretty Face is your debut novel. Can you tell us how you got into writing and what it means to you? Have you always been a writer? And also, what about why fiction attracts you to it as a writer? Well, I I suppose I've always been a writer. Uh, One of my earliest memories uh, is writing a story, though sometimes I wonder if my memories don't go as far back as other people's. But uh, I remember writing a short story for school. So I've written for most of my life on and off. I I got serious about writing a few years ago. My father and I were uh, on this long drive, and a news item came on, and something horrible had happened in uh, some country in the Middle East. And, you know, he turned to me and he said, you should do something. (laughs) And I said, what am I going to do? You know, but that stuck with me for some reason. And he passed away. And the world kept getting grimmer and grimmer. And I thought, you know, just what he had said, just do something, kept coming back to me. And so I started to write again uh, on a serious way. And then eventually it became more than just a pretty face. Anyway, that's a little personal, but (laughs) that's the the story behind how I started writing. And as for YA fiction and what attracts me to it, I do write adult fiction as well. I do have a big deal for an adult novel, but they're very different. I feel that... YA is the fiction of hope. It's a fiction where a character is trying to find their place in the world and trying to realize who they've become, whereas adult fiction is being unhappy with your place in the world or being unhappy with who you've become. Um, and so, you know, these are, uh, not, these are not times that are very light. They're, they're dark times in some ways. And so I think YA fiction is, is a way to move past that a little bit. 
That's such a great distinction, a great way of explaining the difference between YA and adult fiction. And actually, I think my boss, Victoria Stapleton, says kind of the same thing, but like using different words. And I think she'd definitely agree with you. Toni Morrison has a famous quote that goes, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Is More Than Just a Pretty Face that book for you? Uh, definitely in some ways. Um, there are some fantastic young adult Muslim authors uh, doing, doing great work now. We're very fortunate to have them. I feel like a lot of our work, though, sometimes centers around either intolerance, whether it be racial intolerance or whether it be religious bigotry, um, Islamophobia and all that, terrorism. And these are all external points of view. These are, these are all responses to an external gaze. And with more than just a pretty face, I wanted to write a novel where these Muslim kids are just, they just exist. And they live their lives, and their lives have an impact. And they're not beholden to external forces in the same way. And so you will not find the word terrorism or any instances of Islamophobia or any instances of even political issues that the characters themselves don't initiate. So it was a way for me to restore agency to the characters who are the center of these narratives without having them constantly be responsive to outside forces. I remember in one of her forewords for her book, Sula, Toni Morrison was talking about like the prologue in that book or like the very first part of that book and how when she was writing it, it was kind of like, I don't want to misquote her because she's Toni Morrison, but I, what I'm remembering, <laughs> what I'm remembering is she was talking about the white gaze and she was talking about how some readers who, who, who read that book, they would have to like be led into this community of, of, of black characters so that they could, because it's not something that they were familiar with. And I love that in More Than Just a Pretty Face, you don't do that. You just give us the world. This is the world. These are the characters. This is how they live. This is their reality. And it's up to you as a reader to go in there without having your hand held and brought into it. And I just really like that aspect of it. Well, I think, you know, we, we are beholden to Toni Morrison and the giants who came before us that we are able to do that now. Whereas when she was writing Sula, maybe that wasn't the case. But I, I will say that I have lived in many different, I've lived in three different countries. I've visited many more. And I found that human beings have pretty much the same desires and the same wants and the same goals. And so when you're writing a rom-com, <laughs> you're, you're focusing on, uh, you know, some really basic human truths. And so you're able to just say, okay, here we are. You all understand what's happening here. <laughs> in the first scene, he's at school, uh, Daniel's at school, the main character, and he's talking to a girl he likes. And it doesn't get more universal than that, really. Um, we all can relate to that in some way. So it, it was easy to break into the world and just say, okay, here we go from here. Imagine a bookshelf. On this bookshelf is one book, more than just a pretty face. What are three books you would place next to it and why? Uh, well, I'm going to start with... Katie Henry's Heretics Anonymous, which is one of my favorite books. She is obviously an excellent author, but what I love about the book is how relatable it is for me. You know, it's about a young man going to a Christian parochial school, but the experiences 
that he goes through are a lot like the experiences that I went through growing up. And so I really relate to it on multiple different levels. In fact, my wife gave a copy of an arc of more than just a preface to uh, my mom. And, you know, it has romance in it. And now I'm basically living in a Katie Henry novel, except I'm 20 years too old to be one of the protagonists. So it's, it's a wonderful book. And I, I, I think it's, everyone should read it. The second book that I'm going to go with, and this is related to more than just a preface. I was wondering if I should keep it all YA, but a very important book that I read to write more than just a preface was uh, Churchill's Secret War, which documents the uh, Bengal famine, the causes of it, the lead up to it, why it happened. And uh, again, I think that's a very illuminating text. It's not an adult, but uh, definitely belongs on a, on a shelf with pretty face, written by Madhursi Mukherjee, and it is, it is fantastic. And then I would say Paper Towns by John Green. And I was reading Paper Towns when I wrote more than just a pretty face. And really, I, I think John Green is an excellent writer. And uh, I, I think it had an influence on the way I wrote Pretty Face. So I would say those three. Brilliant choices. I haven't read any of those books, but they're on my shelf now. <laughs> like, I have a huge stack. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine. I have a huge stack of books that I have to read. Like, I say have to, but I want to read, and I haven't gotten through any of them. And I have, like, lists. I have lists on Amazon. I have lists at my local bookstore. I have lists at the Brooklyn Public Library. And then I have, like, the list that I write down in my notebook of, like, all the books I want to read. So it's just, like, an, a never-ending and always-increasing list of books. So those three are added yeah, now. Yeah, they keep making more of those. Yeah. Yes. Has writing this book changed you as a reader? And have you learned anything from it that you'll bring to your next work? I think it has. I notice more details now and more craft issues than I, than I used to. Uh, I'm going to refer back to Heretics Anonymous by Katie Henry. She does this fabulous thing with a ribbon that the heroine is wearing in her, um, in her hair, and it recurs throughout. And I really love the way she did that. I'm not sure I would have. I mean, I, I was an English major, but I'm not sure I would have noticed. I would have noticed the ribbon. I'm not sure I would have noticed how she uses it throughout the book if I weren't reading after having written one myself. So uh, those kind of things, small details, gestures the characters do, uh, a sentence that's crafted really well, those kind of things stand out to me more. And hopefully, uh, I just turned in my second book to my editor, Dieter Jones, today. Um, so, oh, wow. So congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully I did learn something and she'll agree. <laughs> so, we'll go from there. Oh, well, I'm sure she's told you this, and I'm, I'm sure you know this, but Deirdre absolutely adores you. When she was first telling us about more than just a pretty face, she was just gushing about it. So, Yeah, no, I, I have learned so much, not just from reading other books and writing this one, just from her. I mean, it has been a journey, uh, truly. Um, I'm so grateful for her, uh, and working with her has been an absolute privilege. So uh, hopefully she liked this one, too. <laughs> So this is just a side question for myself because I'm super curious, but like, was there a difference in time between when you were writing More Than Just a Pretty Face and the second book? Like, what did it take you longer to write More Than Just a Pretty Face? I actually draft really fast. I, I can write, thankfully, <laughs> a large amount of, uh, of material very quickly. The problem for me is figuring out what, how the book is going to shape up. 
Um, and I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I don't do plot outlines, which is embarrassing because people keep asking me how to write books now, and I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I just start writing. And what that means is the first bit of it, which is just you know getting all the other stuff out of the way, usually throwing out the first 50 pages because they're just wrong, it, it's the more, more labor-intensive part. This one was faster because I obviously had a deadline, <laughs> but <laughs> also because I was able to figure it out faster. It didn't have to go through all the various iterations that Daniel had to go through. The book I started writing, which eventually became more than just a pretty face, was very different. Um, I was going to do a there's, a... there's a short story by Kafka called Metamorphosis, mm-hmm. where the main character wakes up and he's a cockroach, mm-hmm. right? And I thought, I should do a Muslim riff on that, you know? And main character wakes up, and he's cursed, and he's a goat. And, you know, he has to go to his in-laws, and they're serving mutton biryani, and he's freaking out, you know, um, stuff like that. And then there was this main character, Daniel Jelani, sorry, the side character, Daniel Jelani, um, whose voice kept bugging me. Um, and I threw out the first two pages because that wasn't working. But I thought, you know, this Daniel character really has something. So I started writing him instead, and we went from there. So to answer your question, this one was faster, but the drafting part of it wasn't faster. Pretty Face was also written relatively quickly. Is just figuring the book out, which is a tough part for me. Cool. I'm really glad that you said that Danielle spoke to you, because I think, like, more than just a Pretty Face is such a great read, but I think one of the things that really makes it so powerful is just Danielle himself. But we can get more into that a little bit later on. Yeah. Okay. I love rom-coms. They're my favorite food group. And I'm not joking when I say this. Like, my preferred way to spend my time is reading and watching rom-coms. Before diving into some more in-depth questions with you about the book, I wanted to ask, what are some of your favorite rom-com tropes and why? Do you love rom-coms? And were you at all daunted by the prospect of writing one yourself? Actually, I love rom-coms. There's a rom-com that came out when I was in law school called Along Came Polly. I think I went to see it twice. And convincing my friends when you're, you know, a 26-year-old guy convincing your friends to go with you, just <laughs> rom-com is pretty tough. And to do it twice is something else. Um, so anyway, I, I love rom-coms, but... I'm a comic writer, I find. I, I rely on humor, and I happen to be a romantic, and so I think my books just come out as rom-coms. I don't really set out to write them. Uh. Um, I also think that all stories are love stories. I, I firmly believe that, whether it's love of yourself, love of your country, love of other people, love of money. I mean, every story revolves around love. It just so happens that I'm writing about romantic love, but I, I really feel rom-coms are not only entertaining, but also universal in that way because they are love stories and those speak to us because all our stories that we tell are love stories so along came polly is that the one with ben stiller um, or one of the ones i, with I believe ben it's ben stiller and jennifer aniston i think oh, okay i haven't seen that one but i'm adding that okay. to my rom-com list now <laughs> whenever i talk about this book i always gush about how absolutely laugh out loud funny it is Humor, I think, is one of the most difficult things to get across on the page. And I want to know, how were you able to do it? Obviously, you're like a funny person in real life. Just speaking to you, you're a funny person. But how were you able to take 
your real life personality, I guess, or your real life sense of humor and actually be able to communicate it. So somebody sitting in their room reading this book is laughing while they're reading it. You know, my wife says it's really strange that people think I'm funny. Um, no, <laughs> you're so funny. Um, <laughs> um, but she's, she's kidding. Um, I think she's kidding. I tell myself she's kidding. But anyway, the so my hero in terms of storytelling, and this is going to sound strange because I'm not going to talk about a great writer in the literary canon. I'm going to talk about Ray Romano, who is brilliant, in my opinion. Ray Romano <laughs> of Everybody Loves Raymond? Yes. I've show. seen every um, episode of that show, by the way. I love that show. Um, <laughs> you know, people talk about Seinfeld being the greatest comedy show ever, and Seinfeld is great. But, you know, my uncle, who argues with you all the time, said, you know, it's about nothing, you know? And I'm like, yeah, but life isn't about nothing. Life is about family, and everybody loves Germans about that. And in a way, that show is a romantic comedy, if you think about it, um, in its own way. But, you know, Ray Romano said... There was a show, uh, an episode of Everybody Loves German, I don't remember which one, but he was doing an interview afterwards, and they were praising him for addressing social issues. And he said, you have to earn it with the comedy. And that has stuck with me. I firmly believe that no one who wants to read a rom-com comes to a book saying, oh, I would like a history lesson, please. You know, they, they want to be entertained. And yeah, if you have something to say, at the same time, that's great. But your primary job as an author is to entertain people. As far as the craft of comedy is concerned, that's a little hard to explain. I'm going to try, but it's, you know, what makes something funny is, it's like, what is life? You know, I don't know. But I think you take a concept, uh, you take a truth, and you twist details about it um, until it becomes funnier than it was. So I'm going to use an example from the book, Pretty Face. My father had this, had this uh, little quirk. He never apologized. Like, he never apologized, ever. He would do nice things for you, but he would never actually say you're sorry. It just wasn't in his character. And I, I realized that's very old school. And so the father in Pretty Face, uh, there's a scene where he wants to apologize to Daniel, and he doesn't, doesn't want to come out and say he's sorry. So he gets him a gift. And, and so far, it's pretty standard. This is my lived experience. And the lived experience of some other people, too. So there's truth to that experience. But then how do you make it funny? Well, maybe the mom is there sort of urging him on in the background, so you twist it a little bit. Maybe the gift is awful. You twist it a little bit. Maybe the gift is a video game that about a sport that the father loves and the son doesn't care about. Maybe it's a video game for a console that the son doesn't even have. So you keep twisting it, and at some point it becomes funny. If that makes any sense? It does. What you said about how hard it is to explain how to make something funny reminds me of this, I guess, this thread I saw on Twitter. And somebody was somebody told a joke. Somebody tweeted out a joke. And somebody answered, why is this so funny? And the person answered, because it's a joke. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. But, you know, I will, I will say this. Uh, uh, some credit for the humor does go to my agent and to Deidre because... You should see what's left on the cutting floor. <laughs> you know, there there were jokes that I thought were funny that didn't think were funny, and they, I pulled them out. So it looks polished because it has been polished, and I appreciate that. So it's good to have a sounding board. It's very nice. Sadia yeah. Faruqi called your hero Danielle Jelani, a hero who is every girl's dream, but also very Muslim and very cool 
and very much on board with faith and culture being compatible. And she's absolutely right. How did Danielle come to you? I think you told us a little bit about this earlier, but you can go more in depth here. Did he change at all over the course of your writing him? And how did you find his voice? So, yeah, we talked about this a little bit before. My thing is, when I start writing the first two pages, which is painful at the beginning because I know I'm going to throw them out, I'm not married to the main character. And so Daniel is an interesting choice for a main character for a YA. A lot of YA characters we see, because our audience is, you know, our, our young readers, a lot of whom are, are brilliant and intelligent, I feel like a lot of YA is catered to and features very bright and academically gifted young people. And, you know, more power to them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was reading a lot of YA before starting, I started writing this, and I noticed this pattern. It's like all these kids getting A's, and I'm like, what about the kids who are not getting A's? <laughs> you know, that's okay, too. Uh, and uh, especially in basic culture where there's so much of a premium on the ability of kids to perform academically. When I was in school, I remember um, we had moved from Pakistan, and it was a bio class. I think it was biology. It may have been chemistry. It was all the sciences. And I got a 96 out of 100. And we had a parent-teacher meeting the next night, and my father went in, and he like, what is wrong with him? Why can't he get a 100? Why is he stuck on 96? And my teacher is like staring at me like, what's going on? <laughs> thinking, this is just the way it is. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of pressure. And so to have a kid who isn't doing well academically, but is okay with that, I thought would, would be fascinating. And uh, Daniel started off pretty fully formed in my head, at least as far as, far as the book was concerned. The pre-book that existed beforehand he was just a side comic character who was just gonna, who was just there to make these comments, and because you know he would, they would be kind of silly because he's kind of silly. It was just meant to be funny. But when he became the main character, I think his biggest development over the course of the book was how much he how much he came to realize that surface level things aren't as important as what's inside. Not only people, but also stories and histories, you know, and, and sort of exploring depth as opposed to just being fascinated by appearance. So that was his big transformation. What I found fascinating about writing him was how constrained he made me personally, you know, because his vocabulary was limited, relatively speaking. It's a simpler book because it's a simpler main character, but there's a lot of depth to him, which comes out later. So it starts off shallow and goes deep, and that's kind of the same for the writing of it. It started off where, okay, it's just going to be funny, and then the book became sort of a rom-com plus when he started encountering the world and trying to figure it out. So uh, it was a fun journey to go on, and writing him sort of mirrored his experience in a way. He does get, like, this appreciation of depth further on in the novel, but I felt like even at the beginning, he was just... And I don't know if it's just because he's such a sweet kid, but even at the beginning, I felt like he just, like understood people I guess like he gave himself and other people a chance for him to understand them I felt like I, I wanted to give him yeah so when I create characters I, I usually especially main characters I say give them one flaw one big flaw at least at least one big flaw and one great strength right and 
when I decided that I wasn't going to make him academically gifted, I simultaneously had to decide what is going to be his great emotional, his great strength. And uh, his emotional intelligence um, was what I focused in on. Have someone be a genuinely good person. And again, in, in coming from a culture where the value of people is determined, especially the value of young people, is determined by how well they do academically, having a kid who's actually brilliant emotionally was a, was a conscious choice. That is such a great strength, though. That's like, like being academically gifted is great and all, and like your future is going to be great and all that. But like being able to be good to other people and just know how to do it without having to work too hard at it because it's like, it's like something that's in you is, is, is so powerful. And we could go into the gender stuff, but I didn't have any gender questions here because I know a lot of people are always saying that it's like, it's women who do all the emotional work and all of this, but I just really like seeing Danielle doing it. It was, it was really refreshing. I have gotten a lot of feedback about, about the gender role, roles being reversed in, in the book. I'm not sure if they're necessarily reversed. I thought Bisma was also very emotionally intuitive in a different way. And, and, and Double has her own view of the world. So I felt all the characters had their own, their own positions. But yeah, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback about that. And I think for some reason, when we talk about boys in young know, literature, we don't talk about their feelings as much. And one of the reasons I love John Green is because he does do that. But, you know, it, writing male characters... I remember someone telling me, you know, make sure you focus on the hormones. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how we're going to do that. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about, you know, actual emotions. And uh, the experience of being a young man and, and, and figuring out what that means is, is con- it's a confusing time. And, you know, it was, it was fun to sort of revisit and, and write about. And quite frankly, I, I did do pretty well in school. But I do wish I had had more of Danielle's strengths because it's it's really the more important thing uh, as you grow, you know, as you grow into a full person, not to suggest that young people aren't full people, but as you grow into an adult, let's say, being able to connect with other people emotionally is, is way more important than your SAT scores. It just is. You portray the intricacies of family and community so well. I'm not Muslim, but I am an immigrant. And I do have this entire network of extended family here in New York aunts and uncles and cousins, just like Danielle does. Was it important to you to get their depictions and voices and idiosyncrasies just right? It was really important. I was so scared. Uh, <laughs> I continue to be scared. Um, you know, you, when you're writing, I think a, a lot of Muslim writers talk about this on Twitter. A lot of uh, black writers talk about it. Uh, uh, really, uh, all minorities talk about this, is the pressure of representing your community. Because when you are underrepresented, everyone who comes to it, comes to your work, expects for some reason to see themselves in it. And and (laughs) it's one thing for, you know, someone who's outside the community to feel like, oh, this work should represent everybody because the culture is a monolith. But what's fascinating is the audience does that too, you know? And and, and so you write about a character who's not a good Muslim, or you write about a character who is a good Muslim. And I'm going to limit it to Muslims because that's what the book's about in, in some ways. Characters, people get offended. You know, that's not reflective of my experience. I remember um, when I was a student at the University of Toronto, uh, a professor came to me and he said, have you read Mohsen Hamid's Smoke? And I said, no. He said, can you read that, please? <laughs> okay, so I read it. Mohsen Hamid, one of my heroes, fantastic. And I went to him and I said, this is great. What's wrong with it? And he says, 
you know, I'm teaching it, and all these students from Pakistan are saying, you know, and the Muslim is from, is, is from Pakistan. All these students are from Pakistan are saying, this is not our experience. Well, it's not your experience. <laughs> it's Muslim's experience. You know, uh, Rami Yusuf just won a major award, and uh, same kind of criticism of him I, I heard, you know, this is not the Muslim experience. And, and, and what I keep telling people is, it may not be your Muslim experience, but it's his Muslim experience. And so when you're writing a community that's underrepresented, you have to be careful. I want to get it right. You want to treat it as something that's valuable, but not something that's precious. So you, you can't be afraid to criticize where there's room for criticism. And there can be plenty of room for criticism in see uncle and auntie culture. But at the same time, there's value, especially um, auntie culture, which is fascinating. Because if you think about it, you've got a power structure for women built into an integral part of a patriarchy. It is amazing, and it self-propagates. So I think it's fascinating. I, I hope lots of women write lots of books about it. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating culture. So, yes, I want it to be accurate, and I want it to be respectful, but at the same time, I also want it to be to criticize where it needs to be criticized. And for a person like Danielle, who's uh, who's sort of an outsider, not because he doesn't want to be part of the culture, but because no one takes him seriously because of his grades. And this young uncles and aunties focus a lot on your grades. It, it gave him a chance to be on the outside sort of looking at and saying, yeah, I'm not going to sit over there and debate this with uncles and aunties. You know, I'm going to go do my own thing. What you were just saying about the aunties and the auntie culture was just, I was like, that's such a brilliant, like, idea for a novel, like, a novel told in chorus, but, and it's the aunties who are the chorus, and they're the ones telling the story. I think that'd be really cool. That would be fantastic. Honestly, like, that would be great. I can't write it. <laughs> like, you know, it's one of, those, one of those books that I just know I'm not qualified to write, you know, but it would be fantastic. You could do... Mosin Hamid's Mosmok is written in third person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, in second person. It's written in second person, and it's you are on trial, or you are. The, I'm sorry, you're the judge trying the various. You're doing. A, you're conducting a trial, and so you're listening to testimony. So something like that would be really cool if someone's trying to figure out the truth of what happened, and they're interviewing a bunch of aunties who are telling their own versions of the story. It'll be so great. Oh, that sounds so good. We're we're putting it out there for somebody to do it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Do that. <laughs> All right. I will read it. Uh-huh. Okay. A lot of young readers, especially today, I feel, have to navigate a world in which they discover that what they've been told of history and the past either isn't true, isn't the whole story, or isn't representative of their experiences. The history they're given erases them. How did you approach writing about Danielle's research into Winston Churchill and the Bengal famine? Well, I think we live. And I think what's fascinating about Daniel is, as he learns to look past appearances, um, especially in his romantic interests, it, it, you know, he, he's uh, infatuated with this girl, he doesn't really know her, and then he comes to realize, hey, I, I idealized this person in my mind without knowing who she was, and that's not her fault, it's my fault. I'm probably giving away too much. Can you cut that? <laughs> no, you're not, not giving good. away too much at all. Everyone who comes okay, to this right. podcast knows there is there are going to be spoilers. Okay, all right. So, um, so as as he learns to look past appearances and realize that you know you can't just look at what's shining in a Um You need to look at 
what the depth is. And sometimes failing to do that is your own fault, you know. I, I think we live in a society which focuses on appearances, and it's nobody's fault. It's just visual images have always been very strong, and now we live in a culture where we're inundated with them. So there's, there's value to learning to look past the story you're initially told. And history is, is like that in some ways. We have a very shiny, polished view of what history is, and we have built a very nice art for ourselves in the West, which goes, you know, from the Roman Empire, uh, well, really from the Greeks, but, you know, all the way, sort of, we draw a straight line up, you know, humanity is trending up, but that's on the story of every civilization, and when it comes to history, it, it helps to come from a background where the straight line isn't going up, <laughs> it hasn't been going up for some time, it hasn't been going up in my lifetime anyway. There's a great book, by the way, called The History of the World Through Muslim Eyes, which talks about how the history looks very different when you're standing on the other side. And the author makes a point, you could say that about the Chinese civilization as well, this history looks different when you're not part of, when you're not viewing it from America or England, you know. So anyway, getting back on track. With Daniel, the, the challenge was, again, trying to keep what is a relatively complex history simple enough for him to be able to stand up and make a presentation about it and also connect with it. And we did that through through food. It's like the one true love of his life, or at least at the beginning of the book, is the one true love of his life. And so he has an emotional connection to it. And so for him to be able to be interested in Winston Churchill's story and how history works, we had to find an emotional connection for him. And the Bengal famine was important because... It is about food. It's about the denial of food. And, and so he was able to connect through it, uh, to, to the famine through that. And then once, once that connection was made, then it was more about sort of educating people about what happened. And as Danielle learns, you know, not all your heroes are heroes all the time. And they're definitely not heroes to other people. So, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating experience. I didn't know that much about the Bengal famine. I mean, I knew a little bit about it, but I had to read up about it and, and then sort of convert it into terms that Daniel would relate to and, and be able to articulate when it came time to do his presentation. And having Bisma help him with that was very useful. <laughs> what do you want readers to take away from more than just a pretty face? An intense desire to read my next book. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I think more than anything... I would like them to see the characters as fully formed individuals in their own right, who are informed by their culture, informed by their religion, but not defined and constrained by it. We tend to read about and see on TV minorities especially, but really all people sort of confined by the narratives that the media puts them in or the cultural narrative puts them in. But people are complex. And so different characters can have different relationships to the same religion, to the same culture, to academics, to all kinds of things. Uh, and so I just want people to see uh, a diverse cast of individuals just sort of just making their way, not defined by outside forces, but just existing and impacting the world in their own way, even if it's small. And, uh, you know, hopefully to have fun. Really, I want people to have fun. You know, all the, the themes are important, and the obviously the historical aspect, the Churchill aspect, 
all that is is is, is amazing, and and I, I love to talk about it, and I have gone on about it for some time here. I understand that, but the most important thing is that readers have fun, young readers have fun, they learn to enjoy it. That's the point of comedy. And if someone learns something in the middle of it, someone takes something away from it, that's a bonus. But uh, I hope you laugh. Well, I absolutely think that you achieve all of that in the book, and I do think readers will take take that away with them. I have well, one you. extra surprise question that just came to me from <laughs> listening to you, because I'm a little bit fascinated with, with everything you said about how you write, and also that you love Ray Romano. And like, I haven't watched Everybody Loves Raymond in such a long time, but I, there was a time in my life when I was like obsessed with it when I was in college. Like there used to be, I'm sure there still are, but I don't have cable anymore. But anyway, there used to be um, reruns on either TNT or TBS, like hour long uh-huh, reruns, like a, an hour long block and I would just watch them. So like, it's making me think of Everybody Loves Raymond in a completely different way now to think about it as like, from a literary standpoint, right? So is there like a real tension for you when you're writing between character and plot? Because I know you said that Danielle came to you from another story where he was like a side character or like a comic relief character. And also that you don't totally have the plot from the exact beginning when you start writing. So is there a tension there for you? And what is that tension like? I think that plot is for other people. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the way it is. It's, it's for the reader. I don't really care about plot. No, I'm kidding. I care about it a little bit. So plot is nice when you stumble upon it, but, you know, the book that really helped me figure out who I was as a writer and my writing technique was On Writing by Stephen King. Um, it is actually, the way he writes is a lot like I write. Uh, I mean, so that book really helped me. And it won't help everybody. Everyone has different ways they ways they write you know you can't write the way i write and write something like holly black writes you know it's just not gonna work um you need more plotting for that kind of thing but the way i write is stephen king has this great analogy where he says you're you're at you're, you're camping and you're in the dark and there's a fire in front of you and the fire is just sort of flickering and a character comes and puts some firewood on it and then the next character emerges from the darkness and puts some firewood on it. And pretty soon, you've got a big old roaring fire going, and you can see everybody. And that's sort of how I write. And that's a great way to explain it. You know, it's, I, I start off with one character and the next character, and then it's just a scenario. You know, it's just, hey, with Pretty Face, it didn't even start with the academic contest renaissance, man. That wasn't even the idea. The, the idea was, really, the book was about forgiveness. How are people dealing with forgiveness. Why is someone like Winston Churchill forgiven for being responsible in part, at least, for, you know, the starvation of three million people? And then this girl who does something in her personal life is ostracized by a community and can't be forgiven for it. You know, what is forgiveness? And then you, you, you have an idea in your head and you have Daniel, and that's all you have. And you start writing and slowly the sort of firewood keeps coming and coming and the characters start colliding and things happen. So I, I think when you write like I do, there are certain drawbacks, a lot of drawbacks, ex- labor ex- uh, intensive. It requires a lot of heart to just toss away the first 50 pages, you know, at least. <laughs> I tell people I write two books for every one book that I write, I publish, you know, it's like there's another one that didn't get written. What's cool about it is 
it's never predictable <laughs> because I don't know what's going to happen. So hopefully the reader doesn't either. And so hopefully the plots are enjoyable for that reason. But yeah, plot is, is not my primary consideration when I'm writing. It's fascinating. And I think that's a great way to write too because on the other end for the reader, I think it means that the rereadability of a book is that just that much more potent because you're coming back you already know what happens, but you're not coming back just for what happens. You're coming back for the characters, you know? So That's I really like point. that. Yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. More Than Just a Pretty Face hits shelves this summer on August 4th. In the meantime, you can keep up with Syed on Twitter at Syed and Masood. And you can always find us on Twitter at, at LB School. Until next time. <laughs>